I thank you for listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. Do you find yourself praying and asking for Jesus to come soon and relieve us from this constantly changing world and bring some stability? That's a good prayer. And as a believer, that's also being a good citizen because of our view of the gospel. Last time we learned that believers have what is described as a dual citizenship, primarily in heaven with our Lord and also here in America. John Fonville tells us that dual citizenship and the gospel bring civility to our lives and those around us. Let's listen now to a teaching called The Gospel's Civilizing Effect on an Uncivilized World. If you have your Bibles or your smart pads or however you read your Bible, (laughs) click, turn to, open up, or however you can get to it, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 2, but to get the whole context, we're Uh, Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Let's just listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He's speaking to Titus, his uh, apostolic representative that he sent to Crete to set these churches into order. And he says to Titus, he says, Titus, remind them, remind the believers in Crete to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. He says, look at this, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So uh, let me just quickly review just a little bit to give you some context on the book of Titus. Paul's letter to Titus teaches us that the gospel, the gospel not only creates the church, but the gospel brings order to the church. Okay, you can say it like this. The gospel brings into this present evil age the age to come. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. If you, through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have been, have been born again, you have been made a new creation. You have been literally made a citizen of the age to come in this present age. The, the future has invaded this present evil age. The church is like previews of coming attractions. All right? And so it's just a glimpse. It's a foretaste, the author of Hebrews says, of the powers of the age to come, that we are tasting of the powers of the age to come so that the gospel creates this this. This different society, this countercultural society in the midst of this fallen society that we find ourselves living in. So the gospel not only creates the church, but it brings order to the church. In chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel brings order to church leadership. In chapter 2, he says that the gospel brings order to church membership. 
But then when we come to chapter 3, he says that the gospel brings order to the believer's national citizenship, how believers conduct themselves in society. And so what he's teaching is, is that believers, you and I, Christians, have a dual citizenship. We are simultaneously citizens of Christ's kingdom, which has come, but is coming it's already, but not yet. But we are also citizens of, of the civil kingdom. We are citizens of the United States of America. So we have a dual citizenship. And so what, what we learn from Titus chapter 3 is, is that when a, a church places the gospel at the center of its life, a church then takes seriously not only how church members conduct themselves within the life of the church, that's chapter 2, but also how church members conduct themselves in society as civilian citizens in the country in which they live. That's chapter 3. What, what Paul is teaching is that the gospel begins to bring civilization. It begins to civilize a group of people, God's people, in the midst of a very uncivil society. And so Paul's concern in chapter 3 is for believers to model good citizenship. Why? Because he's concerned about the gospel reaching unbelievers. He's concerned about the church's evangelistic witness and mission. And so he teaches that the gospel is not, not just a license. It is not a license just for ungodly living in the church. It is not that. He makes that clear in chapter 2. But he says in chapter 3 that the gospel is not a license for believers to conduct themselves in an ungodly fashion in society. The gospel, he is arguing, is, is given to create good citizens. Because he's arguing this point that when you become a believer, a new creation in Christ, a citizen in the kingdom of God, you do not cease to be a citizen in the kingdom of man, in the kingdom of this present evil age. When you become a Christian, you do not cease to be a citizen. And so Paul is very concerned for the witness of the church in an uncivil society so that that different type of living that the gospel creates causes the unbelieving world around us to look at us and go, why are these people so different? And so he talks about these good works. Look what he says in chapter uh, 3, verse 8. He says that this is a trustworthy statement. That's verses 4 through 7, which is that Trinitarian creed of the first century that he quotes here. He says that Trinitarian gospel creed is a trustworthy statement. And he says, and I want you to speak these things confidently so that the purpose of preaching the gospel, look what he says. He says is that God's people will be careful to engage in good deeds. The, these good deeds are listed for us in verses 1 through 2. So we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But look what he says. He says, when you live out these good deeds, these virtues, these civic virtues, look what he says about it. He says, these things are good, and he says, they're profitable for men. They are helpful to make your city better. 
And so what does Paul do in chapter 3 in these verses that we have in verses 1 through 8? This is what he does. He gives four directives, four directives to help believers live as models of good citizenship. And this good citizenship is to facilitate rather than hinder the evangelistic mission and witness of the church so that, verse 8, it positively benefits the city, the believers, the the unbelieving neighbors in which they live. So everybody get the context. That's what he's teaching here. So here's the first directive, verses 1 through 2. The first thing that he tells these believers in Crete, and he tells us, is this. He says in verses 1 through 2, he says, I want you to remember the duties of good citizenship. All right? I want you to remember the duties of good citizenship. And so in verses 1 through 2, he lists seven civic duties that he wants believers to model in an uncivil society. All right? And so these seven civic virtues can be divided into two parts. Uh, The first part is the believer's duty to government authority. And the second is the believer's duty to their fellow citizens. All right? So verse 1, the believer is to remember his his duty to government authorities. Verses 1 and 2, the last part of verse 1 and verse 2, is the believers are to remember their duties towards their fellow citizens, whether they be believers or unbelievers. And so together, these seven civic duties that Paul teaches is what a faithful Christian uh, life looks like in society. And and it's nothing radical, right? We're, we're going to do something radical to really change and transform the world. No, this is very ordinary. Th- these are very basic, ordinary things. And as I said, what Paul is showing us here is how the gospel invades this present evil age and brings with it the age to come and, he, and, and the Holy Spirit slowly begins to show in his church what the age to come is going to look like in a perfectly civilized society that has been purchased by Christ. Because what do all of us want to live in, especially in the day and age that we find ourselves? A perfectly just civil society where everybody's perfectly submitted to authority, maligning no one, right? I mean, go on Twitter. You find enough maligning on Twitter. That's why I got off. Twitter is no good. Just get off Twitter and forget about Twitter. You don't need Twitter. (laughs) Um, Paul is showing us what the age to come is going to be like to live in a perfect society. And so these seven civic duties tell us what a, what a godly Christian who's, who the gospel is informing his or her life is going to look like. And, and so it's important to keep in mind that chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, is the source of where these civic virtues come from. You don't create this. This is what the gospel through the Holy Spirit produces in you as you soak yourself in the gospel. We're going to spend a lot of time here 
These duties of good citizenship are the fruit of the gospel and they're to be understood as the fruit of the gospel because if you don't understand that, you might listen to me up here over the next couple of weeks preaching virtue list to you, to be a moral person. And that's the furthest thing from what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm not, this is not a moralistic lecture. And these virtue lists that Paul includes in this letter and his other letters, like you know, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5, those are not just moralistic principles for you to try hard to become that. It's what the Holy Spirit produces, and you do now begin to pursue it, not to become it. You begin to pursue now who you are in Christ. Read these virtue lists like this. Be who you are. Be who Christ has made you to be. Don't do this to be this. Do this because this is who you are now. You're a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Now behave like that. Do you see the difference? Let's look at the first duty. The application of it to us currently in our society is very difficult. And I can't say everything about it, and I'm not an expert on all this, but I'm going to do my best to give you what Paul says here, verse 1. He says, Titus, remind them, remind the believers in Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. No, don't let it escape your notice that Paul's exhortation to these first century Christians was given in the context of Caesar and the Roman government. Paul is telling these believers in Crete, submit to Caesar and submit to the Roman government. He says, I want you to do this as a witness to your pagan neighbors because verse 8, it's profitable and good for them. So why does Paul begin with the believer's duty to Roman government authorities. Well, if you look at this whole book in context, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, and here in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul begins with civil obedience because these young believers in Crete found themselves swayed by the cultural practices of the broader Cretan society. All right, so you have to go back and do a little bit of first century historical digging to look at this first century Cretan society and listen to how uh, one New Testament scholar talks about what this Cretan society was like for these, these young believers to live in. Uh, he cites this writer called Polybius, and this is what Polybius wrote about first century Cretan culture. He says, it is impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous. <laughs> he says, and it is impossible to find public policy more unjust than in Crete, end quote. And this, this insubordinate culture was having a profound influence on these young believers in the church, teaching them to be insubordinate. Paul, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, he has already mentioned the insubordinate character of these false Jewish teachers. And he says, but these false Jewish teachers who are very insubordinate to the Roman government, he says in chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, they have had destructive effects upon Cretan households. And so this, this, this sin of insubordination, breaking the fifth commandment, it was a huge problem in these emerging young churches that Paul had planted in this insubordinate, unjust society in Crete. 
Now, we'll come back to the fifth commandment next week because like the emerging Cretan churches, breaking the fifth commandment is a problem in our day as well. Not only in the broader culture in which we live, but it's a problem within the church itself. But, but, but I just want to remind you, what is the fifth commandment and, and, and what does it require? Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism uh, sums it up. What does God require in the fifth commandment? And this is, this is a great answer. He says that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my mother and father, uh, and that I show it to all in authority over me, submit myself with new obedience to all their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their infirmities, their weaknesses, because it is God's will to govern us by their hand. We'll come back to this next week, but that's a hard pill to swallow in our culture. And listen, it was a very hard pill to swallow in first century Crete. In fact, it was revolutionary to hear this. And so this, this presence of a large Jewish population in Crete was well documented by historians. And this was perhaps uh, why there were perhaps many Jews in Crete that were in continual uproar and rebellion and insubordination against the Roman government. And it was impacting and influencing this young church, these young believers, these churches in Crete that Paul had planted. And he feared that these churches might become embroiled in political agitation and bring the gospel under suspicion to their unbelieving neighbors. Uh, let me just give you some examples of what it would have been like for a first century Christian to say that Jesus was kurios, that is Lord. Because uh, Roman government authorities would, would, would have wrongly viewed the gospel as containing anti-emperor language. For the gospel proclaimed that Jesus, not Caesar, is the true God and Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13, those are titles given to Caesar. Paul in chapter 2, verse 13, gives us titles to Jesus. Listen to how this New Testament scholar describes the Roman world that Paul is writing to. He says, in the East, it had long been customary to render divine honors to the king. The house of Antiochus encouraged this by adopting titles like Epiphanes, God manifest. And having coinage struck of themselves arrayed in the radiant crown of Zeus. And this, this New Testament scholar goes on to talk about when Christians refused to take part in the imperial cult worship of Caesar. He says this, he says, Christians accordingly appeared to be most dangerous people in society. Why? Because they were not sharing this basic pledge of loyalty to the state. Of course, on their principles, they could not. Jesus had laid the foundation of the distinction between the realm of God and Caesar in his answer about the tribute money. And his followers pursued this line of demarcation. Caesar, Caesar, he says, should be honored but not worshipped. They would not bow the knee or sprinkle incense to Caesar. How could they? They belonged to another son of God, a title given to Caesar. They owed allegiance to another commander, a title, title given to Caesar. They were securely related to God through another Pontifus Maximus, a chief priest. Both Christ and Caesar claim world dominion. A Christian cannot consistently say Caesar is Lord if he professed Jesus is Lord. 
The reason is obvious enough and compelling, but the impression given cannot be one but of political disloyalty. So as Pliny's letter to Trajan makes plain, when a man persisted in refusing to make the customary gesture to the traditional gods and the imperial statue, then he was clearly actionable for criminal obstinacy. This was, to Pliny's experience and legal mind, imminent justification for the death penalty. So back then, to believe the gospel and to make this statement in public, in society, Jesus is Lord, was to make uh, imminent justification for the death penalty. So the Apostle Paul was concerned in under, about underscoring the importance of obedience to the state to dispel any possible misconception that the gospel provided a license for believers in Crete to rebel and disobey governing authorities. You're beginning to see the context now. They're not going to bow the knee to Caesar. They'll honor Caesar and they will obey the government, but not at the expense of refusing to call Jesus Lord versus Caesar is Lord. Do you understand? And so believers, Paul said, look, the way I want you to do this is I want you to live such upright, outstanding lives as model citizens that when they think you are saying Jesus is Lord and they think that you're being disloyal to the state, they'll look at how you conduct yourself in society and say, the Christians make Crete better. Why? Because Paul knew this. Remember, these were very young churches that were just planted. They were just getting started, church plants. And Paul didn't want these church plants to be misconstrued as rebellious citizens who are inciting rebellion against Rome. And because why? He knew this. Any attempt to rebel against Roman government was powerfully put down. And these little churches would have just been snuffed out just like that. And if this happened, the, these emerging churches in Crete would have crippled their evangelistic mission to this uncivil island. And so Paul says, remember, Cretans, you are citizens of Christ's kingdom, but you're also citizens of the civil kingdom. Therefore, you have a responsibility to obey civil authorities. These directives for civil obedience raise many questions, particularly for Americans who live in a democratic republic. We are very, very different from these first century believers. So we'll look at this next week on how this, how the fifth commandment applies to our situation. But what I want you to see this morning is this, because this is very important for you to get. We have to understand that Christ's kingdom currently, of which the church is the community of Christ's kingdom on earth now, is a kingdom of grace. That is vital for you to get that. Christ's disciples failed to understand this in his first coming. For example, when John the Baptist was put in prison, he became dismayed about Christ's coming because he, he was like, why is Jesus not using his power to bring judgment upon the Roman government? He thought Jesus was bringing back the so-called glory days of Joshua, the holy wars of the Israelite conquest of the promised land. And what John failed to understand is that Jesus had very clearly announced in the Sermon on the Mount a regime change. 
He had announced in Matthew chapter 5 that, that uh, the, the old covenant mediated by Moses, the Mosaic covenant, had shifted now to the one that Jesus himself mediates as Abraham's greater seed, the new covenant. And John failed to realize that the transition from promise type to fulfillment reality had taken place, that the the Old Testament events under the Old Covenant, Joshua's conquest of Canaan, right? Those were but types and shadowy pictures of further events yet to come. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through following. John chapter 1, verse 14, John chapter 2, verse 19, John tells us clearly in his gospel that the tabernacle and temple were types and shadows of Christ. Christ is the temple. Jesus said to the Jews, he says, destroy this temple, and he says, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, all the shadows and types of Christ vanished. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, he says, became obsolete when Christ appeared in his first coming. Consequently, listen, there's no room for the shadows and types under the gospel. As the author of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Gospel's Civilizing Effect on an Uncivilized World. More from the models of Good Citizenship series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time.